This is a conversation with Cora Courier of The Intercept and Descent on homelessness, the myths of meritocracy, and the violence of the state and capital against the unhoused. Cora's reporting in Descent magazine was one of the better examples of journalism I've seen on homelessness and unhoused issues. We discuss her piece, her thoughts on how the richest country in the world has such uh, epidemic of homelessness and how the cruelty of the state and legal systems exacerbates the suffering of people who've had no crime committed other than being born into the United States. For more conversations with people like Cora or her colleague John Schwarz of The Intercept, you can go through our back catalog. We're on iTunes, Android, or Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Wooshka. You can go to our YouTube page, which you can find by searching for Asia Art Tours. We have video footage from art, protests, and interesting scenes all over Asia. And for our main website and program, you can go to Asia Art Tours, where we build programs to connect travelers to the art, artists, activists, and thinkers of Asia. All right, here's our conversation with Cora Courier on homelessness, the unhoused, and how it relates to the United States. Thank you for listening. So my own sort of interest is, is like when I see people who've gone to Harvard or Yale or like the best schools that are, um, you know, very close and proximate to wealth and power, and then I see them become either journalists, there's a lot of Ivy League graduates in journalism, and they talk about that tension of, you know, sort of Sarah Smarsh has obviously been very uh, eloquent at voicing some of those concerns, but... Um, I'm wondering, I guess a two-part question is with your background coming from Harvard, was it something where you had to, how did you, would you get into something like homelessness and then coming from an environment where you are close to privilege, was it something where you had to sort of unlearn uh, sort of your lens for how you view the world when you started doing more of this coverage of protests and homelessness and, and more... Um, uh, journalism that might be centered on poverty and a lack of privilege. Yeah, I think that the um, you know the prevalence of Ivy Leaguers and uh, other universities and just generally speaking, uh, people of from privileged backgrounds, um, of which I'm definitely one, uh, dominating journalism and particularly dominating. Uh, you know, the most powerful parts, you know, organs of journalism in, in, in the big coastal cities um, is a huge problem and definitely colors the way that we cover these issues and the extent that these issues get covered at all. Um, so I think it's, it's a huge deal. And definitely over, you know, since I first got interested in journalism as a, as a teenager, um, you know, you, one of the first things I think you need to learn to shed is your sort of savior complex, right? The idea that, uh, you're this, um, all powerful, uh, beacon of truth and light that's going to come in and, and, and spotlight a problem and, and, uh, and get it fixed. Um, you know, you have to learn a lot of humility about the limits of journalism, the damage it can do to, uh, 
expose um, someone's life, you know, to the the the, uh, the imbalance of power between the reporter and the subject. Often, right? You, um, the fact that you're always trying to get something out of, you're getting more. Most often, you are getting more out of your interviewee than they are out of you, right? They um, uh, they're helping you illustrate a problem, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that their particular problem is going to be solved by your story. Um, and in some cases, it could be made worse. You know, they might not be prepared for being featured or, or the attention that's brought on them. Um, so yes, definitely a lot of of uh, of learning about humility and willingness to learn from your subjects, uh, willingness to um, you know have your own biases uh, checked and 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 confronted. And for uh, best practice, you know, I, I think everyone has sort of their little tics or preferences when they're reading language, but language is really powerful. Predict, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with journalists based out of mainland China, and they're like, China is made up of <laughs> like millions of minority groups, many, you know, of whom will have very different faiths, but in Western journalism, you'll just see Chinese. And they'll say, well, what does that mean? Where is this person from? What's their background? And so on. So homelessness, one of the sort of pet peeves I have is where I see homelessness is used as a collective noun, as opposed to saying homeless people. Because sometimes I think that that sort of language bleeds into viewing homelessness through sort of this uh, technocratic fixes that don't center the actual human beings who are having to struggle these struggle and live these lives. So I'm wondering for you as someone who is a experienced seasoned reporter and uh, has centered some of her own work in homelessness, what are some of the best practices or pet peeves that you have with how um, homelessness is currently covered versus maybe best practices that you think would improve the type of coverage we see of homelessness in the media? I think that you're right using uh you know, trying to describe people um, as opposed to treating them as just statistics or mobs or, you know, sort of a problem. Um, like when people say the homelessness problem, you know, I think that uh, what are we talking about when we talk about homelessness problem? We're really talking about a housing problem. Um, and a lot of activists have shifted to using the term unhoused. Um, and this is not about political correctness. It's about accuracy, right? We're talking about housing, um, and what California has is a housing problem, not a homelessness problem, right? A homeless problem. And I think that the re the language that, that treats uh, homeless people as a problem, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the fact that they are homeless as the problem is, is really, uh, you know, something to be attuned to. I think that in a lot of coverage, there's a privileging of homeowners' concerns, um, things that people say are just taken totally at face value about, you know, their fears about homeless people, about the links between, you know, like a supposed links between homelessness and crime, people talking about how they're, you know, one thing that you see repeated a lot and you hear all the time in city council meetings, for instance, is people talking about, you know, I'm afraid to walk my children uh, you know, around these areas, or I'm afraid, you know, that this, we have children here, or this new, there's a new uh, proposal in front of the LA City Council that would ban uh, homeless people from sleeping near 
schools or parks and children are often invoked. And for me, rather than just letting that slide, letting someone say, I'm afraid to take my child, why? You know, what are you uh, afraid of? Like, what kind of conversations are you having with your children about these people, um, about the reasons why they're in the street? You know, instead, there's just like this kind of quoting of sort of generic fears about the homeless without sort of um, even interrogating why those fears exist. And the last question I, I want to ask connected to your own background, and then we'll dive into your piece, which I really enjoyed. I think it really measures well with sort of Michael Hobbs' work, who's another journalist I really admire reporting up in Seattle on homelessness. Um, but coming from a background where um, you get into the top of meritocracy, which I don't believe in as a concept, but a lot of people do, a lot of people with a lot of power very much believe in meritocracy. So when, when one gets into Harvard and then one goes to report on homelessness and you see a language, as you mentioned, in sort of these community homeowner meetings or in talking to people who ostensibly or performatively are liberals or left of center, talk about things like, oh, these people didn't work hard or that they, if they could get their act together, they wouldn't have to be in the street. What did covering homelessness treat you about meritocracy and did it help, um, or did it also, like it has for me, where I don't believe in it as a concept, did it really puncture some of what maybe you previously might have um, believed in regarding this sort of concept of meritocracy and that, you know, you end up where you work hard enough to get to? Uh, well, you know, this this piece for me, um, unlike a lot of the other reporting that I've done, uh, really came out of my, it, it was more personal, it came, really came out of my experience as an activist more than as a journalist. Um, you know, I was a participant in, these, in monitoring these sweeps. And I did that really as a, as a citizen um, more than anything, as a person, as, as a resident of LA, as somebody who, you know, I want to think of the unhoused people in my neighborhood as, as community members, as my neighbors, right? Not um, whether or not you're a, a neighbor should be determined whether you have a, a roof over your head. Um, so, but I think that the same, uh, the same questions still apply, right? To anybody, not just journalists, I read this question of like, who, why, why am I, you know, why do I deserve what I have uh, and somebody else do? deserve the fate that they that they have right that they deserve to have less than I do um I just don't buy into that I don't buy into the idea that there's a a, a deserving um rich or a deserving poor I mean I think that the um I'm, I'm with you I don't believe in the meritocracy um you know I like to think that I uh work hard and do well at at, at what I do but I don't um at all have any delusions that um, that I got here just because of my own uh, gumption? It's because of uh, you know the, the class and the status and the opportunities that I was born into. And it, it seems like within the stories, uh, I was just reading your Twitter account is amazing because if you want to dive deep into homeless activism, you're connected very uh, well to numerous organizations in LA. So I was going through and looking at some of the other journalists doing work in LA. And there's this story, I guess, of how like gyms 
which you would never think of as being important to the homeless communities, uh, that there are these very critical sites where people who live out of their cars, they can go to shower, they can go to use the bathroom, and there's been a crackdown in like gyms. But it, within those sort of stories, you really just see a complete scattershot of people who've ended up in these situations. And for you as a journalist, are, is, is your work, are you trying to look more at the structure? Are you trying to look at these individual stories of, like we said, sort of highlighting that really homelessness is something that can happen to anyone? Or, or what are some of the goals in terms of your own personal, um, how you choose what stories you want to report? What are sort of the stories or some of the narratives you really think are important when we think about homelessness? Of course, it's important to present individual stories, um, you know, to counter the stereotypes that people have about uh, about homeless people, you know, to humanize, although I, I kind of don't really like the word, like the, the idea that journalism is about humanization because uh, just assumes, right? Like, I mean, it's true. A lot of people do have a really dehumanizing attitude and I wish we didn't have to do that kind of work, but, um, but that is part of it. Um, but I, I do actually think that it's important to, to keep in mind the, the actual statistical, in addition to, to focusing on individual people, it's important to, uh, look at this statistical picture because people can always, and you often hear, you know, just anecdotal stories, right? Of, oh, I heard, you know, about this robbery or, oh, I heard that some, you know, so-and-so had someone yell at them, you know, like, or, or all the homeless people I've encountered have been, have been mentally ill or something, you know, you hear people say things like that. And when you look at the, um, it's pulled up the last year's uh, official homeless service of Services Authority does a yearly count where they send volunteers out all over the city to try to get like a snapshot of of the homeless population. And, um, you know, the report this year showed a 12 percent increase in L.A. County. Um, so over last year, uh, a what was really interesting in this in this report is that, um, you know, of that of those 58 almost 59,000 people who are homeless, 54,000 of them became, you know, homeless in 2018, right? So these are like, most people are newly homeless. Um, 63% of them, they said, were homeless, were without housing for the first time. They said that 71% of the people they surveyed did not have serious mental illness or substance abuse issues. Um, and they said that 75% of them were homeless residents who've lived in LA County for at least five years, right? So these like, break down a lot of the assumptions that people have, which is like, there's a lot of memes about uh, the homeless in LA, that they are all drug addicts, that they're all mentally ill, that they're all chronically homeless, right? The, the idea that like, oh, we can give people shelter, but they'll just come out of it again. Or the idea, this like really popular idea that this is like California, that like attracts homeless people, right? From other states or that people are coming in from out of state. The numbers just don't bear that out. So I think like while individual stories are important, we, we really, really need to look at the structural picture. But the piece is called Organizing Skid Row. And so I'm wondering if we can sort of break down uh, a couple of those terms, uh, organize and skid row. So when we talk about organize, who are the groups involved that you covered in this piece for Descent Magazine? What are they organizing for or towards? 
And are they trying to organize just within the homeless community or to connect homelessness to intersectional social justice? So connecting homelessness to racism, connecting homelessness to climate change and so on. So the group that I focused on um, and that I've been volunteering with for, for over a year is called um, Street Watch LA. They're made up of a um, consortium of, of local activist groups. The Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles are part of it. Uh, Los Angeles Community Action Network, which is a longtime um, group that's organized uh, in Skid Row for, for years. Um, K-Town for All, which is based in Koreatown. Um, it, these are all groups that have as their focus, like activating a broad uh, sort of grassroots movement um, and involving the people who are impacted by these policies. So it's not about charity, right? It's not about, there are a lot of people um, who do homeless outreach that is about, you know, going and handing out toiletries and water bottles and things like that. And we do some of that. Um, you know, we try to do like direct service. We, we try to respond to people when they have, um, you know, asks things that they need. Uh, you know, we'll, we, sh we share food, we share water. Um, but the focus is on sort of like not only uh, highlighting, you know, for the public and for City Hall, the structural issues at play, the, you know, municipal code violations, the rights violations, things like that. Uh, but it's also about involving um, the unhoused people, involving uh, communities in, 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 these in the fight against those policies. Um, so we spend a lot of time just taking testimony from people. We go out on these to monitor um, encampment sweeps. So when the police or sanitation department goes to uh, a, an unhoused person or a group of people and try to, um, you know, enforce in, in their their interpretation of, of city code and what the people are allowed to have, the belongings that people are allowed to have on them in the street. Um, so we go and we monitor those sweeps and we're, you know, First of all, we're there to partly as harm reduction strategies. If we're filming, the idea is that they're going to treat people better because they're being recorded. Um, and we have had some evidence of that. Um, the second is to you know, document any abuses that do happen. And then after the fact, we talk to people. Um, we make sure we, we find out if they're aware of their rights. We have Know Your Rights flyers. We offer to bring them to trainings. We set up trainings sometimes like at the encampments um, so they can do their own monitoring, so they can record um, interactions with the cops. Um, we offer to bring them to, you know, to pick them up and bring, them, bring people to our organizing meetings, bring people to City Hall uh, to give testimony. Um, uh, have testimony for media. So it's a, it's a multi-pronged approach. And the idea is that like, we're all in this together, right? That housed people need to be arguing for policies that help their unhoused neighbors and also like finding ways to like empower those people themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it, se it seemed really interesting to me. I do, I do not like the theories of Francis Fox Pivot, not in a Beckian way. I'm not a conservative, you know, <laughs> it's not going to take a sudden turn our talk, but I, I'm, I was, I read her work a lot and, and, um, I end up really siding more with figures like King or, you know, perhaps someone like William Barber, who 
don't see the system as it's set up as ever really having a place for these people and sort of, uh, I wouldn't dare speak for any of these men, but how I interpret their work is sort of that you need to demand a radical dignity. Um, but I do recognize, even though I disagree policy-wise with people who might follow more an advocate like Francis Fox Pibben, that they're out there in the street. You know, they're not recording podcasts. <laughs> they're out there talking to these people and working with these people. So it, to, to center the activists for a moment, and then we'll turn to uh, homeless people, the people they're trying to help, um, what are sort of the theories behind what they're trying to do? So when we say organize, what is sort of their strategic goal? Is it just, it, you've mentioned sort of these the two-pronged approach where one is, and, and please correct me um, if, I, if I bungle this, but what I took from your article is number one, you know, we want to get these people services. So if you're addicted, uh, if you're not addicted to drugs, you're a drug user. Um, we want to make sure we want to uh, check your health, clean needles, um, take care of you in that way. If you're someone with mental health issues, we want to provide mental health services. The second part I was a little bit unclear on, when we say organize, is there sort of a strategic sense of we're, we want to bring these people into the body politic? Could you, could you fill us in on both sort of the immediate organizational needs that these groups are trying to provide for the homeless and maybe the more long term? Yeah, so the practical side, um, we have this campaign called Services Not Sweeps, um, which is made up of Street Watch and, and a host of other organizations in the in the city. And um, that has like some very concrete demands. Like they believe, we think that uh, law enforcement should be taken off all of the street cleaning teams. Um, we think that the presence of cops tends to just exacerbate uh, tensions between um the unhoused people, it also puts people just like in the line of fire for criminalization, right? They can get tickets for, for all kinds of um, mundane offenses uh, when the street cleaning teams are ostensibly there just to like, you know, the, the police are ostensibly on the street cleaning teams just to sort of maintain the peace. But like, you know, it's it's just anytime there's an interaction, there's potential for it to go badly for, for the unhoused people. Um the way that the cleaning is currently done, the street cleaning is done, is in most parts of the city kind of ad hoc and in response, often in response to, to businesses or, or, or homeowners' complaints, which makes it kind of uh, vulnerable to the system that can be abused, um, you know, just to be sort of punitive against these uh, encampments and uh, without warning. And so that's another demand is that the uh, cleanings be scheduled and regular and publicized so that people know when they're happening, observers can be there, um, and people can be prepared. Yeah, um, that there's a grievance process, that they we want them to increase trash services, right? One of the constant complaints that you hear from people is like, oh, well, they're just dumping, you know, there's trash dumped everywhere. So it's like most, many of these encampments at this point are like, uh, pretty well-established communities. They would love to have trash pickup. Um, you know, they would love to have showers. They would love to have mobile bathrooms, needle exchanges, Narcan distribution. You know, these are things that are good for everyone. Um, you know, they they if the city is really serious about quote cleaning up, right? These are some really obvious things they could do. Um, so that's some of the practical kind of service 
oriented things that that we're asking the city to do instead of these sort of punitive uh, cleanups or sweeps. The um, the other side of it is about connecting the organizing side, the broader sort of longer term goals is about connecting the issue of homelessness to the broader housing crisis, right? We want to, for example, California narrowly did not, you know, uh, it, well, not unfortunately, not so narrowly, um, but last year, California uh, did not manage to pass a ballot initiative that would have allowed for, um, repealed an old law that was blocking the expansion of rent control across California, um, Proposition 10. You know, we want to connect rent control and affordable housing and the fact that even, you know, like pretty well off people at this point are moving out of California because they're finding it too expensive to, to get housing. Um, uh, you know, we want to f- connect all of these issues to homelessness. And also, um, I think you you mentioned it like in, in sort of enfranchisement, like uh, Angela Gibbons, whose, whose book I talk about in the um in the piece, Andrea Gibbons, excuse me, uh, whose piece I talk about, uh, whose book I talk about in the piece, it's called City of Segregation, and it's a it's a history of housing in Los Angeles. Um, she has a line where she talks about Skid Row as basically being sort of outside of a public with a, a commonly shared set of rights. And I think that we've really gotten to that point um, in so many discussions of homelessness where people just... Uh, just think of the of the home. It's like you lose all your dignity, your rights, your like belonging. Like people just don't want to consider the homeless as, um, you know, a part of the fabric of a city um, and as people who belong in the city as much as someone who owns a home. Um, and I think that uh, there's a, a big front in organizing in, in Los Angeles has been tenant organizing, the Los Angeles Tenants Union and the they've been doing a lot of um, work around trying to like redefine tenant as anyone who doesn't have like control over their own housing. Um, so sort of just expanding the idea of, of housing rights um, and, and bringing a broader group of people into that fight. I, I want to do sort of a transition from police to lawfare to sort of the citizens who support lawfare. But um, First, I just sort of wanted to ask for places like Skid Row, when you talk to, you you have this very just sleazy figure at the end of your piece, and this is me calling him sleazy, you, you don't use that term, but wealthy white man sort of cheering on the police, throwing away uh, a homeless person's belongings as they watch a street sweep uh, occur. Um, I'm wondering if you could just not center, because I don't think they're the heroes of this story. I think, unfortunately, they're sort of the villains. But if we could try to understand or um, understand, could, could you explain sort of the perspective of police who undertake this action, why they see themselves as being sort of, uh, that they're, they're keeping law and order when they're going up to a homeless person and sort of saying, you need to throw away this bicycle, <laughs> your only bike, because it's in the way, or, or saying this is soiled, you can come to this impound lot, you know, very far away from where you live, 
you don't have a car, you don't have money for public transit, and then they, you know, the homeless person, if they do the effort to go there, they find it's been incinerated or thrown in a trash compactor, a blanket that was critical for their survival or a tent critical for their survival, you know, treated like garbage. When we, when we look at the police and when you interview them or when we look at sort of this figure I called sleazy at the end of your piece, what do they say to you when you speak to them and you sort of just calmly state, if these people had homes, they wouldn't be homeless and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to deal with them through the mechanism of law enforcement and you wouldn't have to deal with them through sort of the eyesore or affecting property value that concerns a lot of homeowners or business people. What do they say to you as to why they favor the more punitive or carceral approaches of dealing with homelessness as opposed to a restorative or rehabilitative justice perspectives, I think, offered by the activists in your piece? It's very clear when you're out on these sweeps, sort of whose interests the police are serving. Um, they usually won't talk to the activists at this point. They know most of the teams who are out watching these sweeps, um, you know, and have, if not a antagonistic uh, approach to them, it, you know, they just sort of roll their eyes. Um, they're, but they're always willing to talk to the tourists. They're always willing to sort of, uh, you know, we we see, we've literally seen homeowners come out. You know, people come, especially in Venice. Um, you know, we see people come out of their houses and, and sort of tell the cops, like, oh, I've got a, a homeless guy on my in my, you know, in the back alley. Could you go get him? Like, there's literally, there's this kind of, you know, deference to the interests of the homeowners and the business owners that is just really out in the open and obvious. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, foisting of responsibility. I mean, the cops sometimes like to say to us, like, oh, you know, well, we, it's not our, you know, we're just uh, keeping, you know, we just need things to be clean. We're just, it's sanitation, right? They like to say it's all sanitation, that sanitation are the ones that decide, you know, that, 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 that the code, the municipal code they're enforcing is a sanitation issue and sanitation's the one deciding, you know, if the, if the bike is working or if the blankets are dirty or if the tent's outside, you know, allowed to be up. And so the cops will say, we're just here to, you know, we're just here to keep things calm, you know? And, you know, you hear more than from the cops, you hear it often actually from, from the people that they're waking up and, and taking the tents from, you know, they'll say things like, you know, like I once, this guy was woken up on the beach and he was like surrounded by cops and he, and he was like, all five of you go fight crime. You know, it was like, cause it, were, it was true. It was just the, the lopsided nature of these interactions when there's 11, you know, sanitation workers and five cops standing around one one guy on the beach um it just can't make sense to anyone and i don't think that I, I you know a lot of the beat cops the guys that are out there every you know morning it's not like they well some of them might like doing it but some of them it's it's can't be a good use of their resources um you know but they but there's definitely a tendency to just sort of like deflect and say you know like oh this is just you know uh, none of these structural, none of those structural issues have to do with me, right? I'm just enforcing the the letter of the law here. To center the homeless, homeless people, I, I I want to ask if you could give us sort of through their eyes what a city would look like, because I think even though it it might be common knowledge to homeless activists, principles like hostile architecture or defensive design 
or the history of business, what is it, business development bids, you can hire armed security uh, like uh, other activists I know, Nick Estes, who's been published in The Intercept, talks about, and The Intercept is famous, I think, for talking about Tiger Swan, this private security used uh, in Standing Rock. But from the perspective of the homeless, when, when we look at something like Skid Row and a group of people are congregating there, could you explain for people who might not understand just how hostile a city uh, like a Los Angeles or a Sacramento, which we'll talk about next, um, can, is for the homeless just in terms of the physical environment or in terms of these sort of no-go zones that are, if you try to um, peacefully stay, will just meet you with absolute sort of punitive uh, force? Yeah, so in addition to the, you know, things that everyone knows about Los Angeles, the fact that it's very hard to get around without a car, that, you know, public transit is super limited, um, you know, that large areas of it are sort of privatized um, in gated communities in suburban um, sort of enclaves that, that uh, often have their own security. Um, there is then this patchwork of code and different city, uh, different cities, like all of the different, the, the cities that are within uh, Los Angeles County. Um, right, that are their own entities and make their own rules so that sometimes you will literally, we've seen this in West Hollywood, um, like where West Hollywood is literally pushing uh, homeless folks out of their jurisdiction onto like a, a line that divides West Hollywood from Hollywood, which is, which is Los Angeles city proper, right? So you get these weird kind of jurisdictional maps. Um, and then also thanks to these years of lawsuits and settlements and uh, tentative agreements between um, activists and, and, and the city, you also have this patchwork of where things are enforced and how. So Skid Row is governed by like a slightly different set of policies than, than govern other parts of the city. Um, so it's really bewildering and, and they're constantly changing the terms of the game too. So like, for example, the city is now trying to, uh, there's a, a congressman that's, uh, sorry, a city council member that's now trying to pass a new ban um, on sleeping within 500 feet of um, a, a school or a park or uh, a couple other locations and street and, and uh, members of street watch and, and services, not sweeps went out recently and, and mapped what this would look like, what this practically means in Echo Park, um, a neighborhood in, in uh, Central East, uh, East LA. Um, they did like a half mile radius uh, around the office of, of this, this uh, uh, city councilman. And it's just, there's so few places left because you're already barred from sleeping uh, near doorways and, and driveways. Um, and then they mapped out these 500 feet radius around uh, the streets and sidewalks of, of, of schools and, and parks and daycare centers, which would be banned under this new proposal. And it, it basically pushes people out of the neighborhood entirely. There are very few places left. And we've already seen that with sleeping in cars. Um, there are only, it's, sleeping in cars is banned for most uh, residential areas. So there's only, um, you know, sort of a, an odd patchwork of, of streets where people are, where it's legal to sleep in your car in LA. Um, and that's been a big issue because for a lot of people, the, the car is sort of a transitional place, right? When they're between, when they're, when they're 
housing situation is insecure. And then there's sort of long-term um, uh, RV and camper dwellers and stuff like that. So that's been, this has been an ongoing thing, but um, yeah, there's swaths of the city and it would get much worse if they, if they enact this new um, ordinance that are just that are totally off limits or where if you are in those spaces, um, you know, the police or homeowners have uh, or, you know, somebody who just wants to be an asshole has, has has all kinds of ammunition to use against you. I follow more sort of the work of scholars like Samuel Moyne or uh, Katerina Pistor, who sort of talk very often about how law is shaped and used by the powerful sort of for their own ends. Um, and there's some liberals who are good at that. Warren has her good points on that, for sure. But when we look at sort of the lawfare as it's used against um, homelessness, two things are really interesting to me. One comes from um, work from Michael Hobbs again, who talks about civic injunctions in California, in Sacramento, and how this is an extremely dangerous precedent being used by powerful interests like bids, uh, I'm not sure they're equivalent in Sacramento, but uh, either tenant associations or homeowner associations or business interests as, as a legal cudgel against the homeless. At the same time, we have this legal decision that potentially offers hope, at least temporarily, before it reaches a Roberts-Kavanaugh-led court, and that is, to echo language I heard you use, full of assholes, in my opinion, so I'm not sure it'll survive. But can you talk a bit about the legal battles of homelessness? So the things, uh, how prosecutorial methods are used to wage war against the homeless, the same way policing uh, is used against them, as well as why this Boise decision in, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has given homeless advocates a slim sort of ray of hope. Yeah, so the Boise decision... Uh basically uh, it was it came out of Boise as the name suggests and it was about a that well that like you know ban on sleeping in um in public spaces but like a, a blanket ban on activities that would you know that are basically necessary for survival and you know that's criminalizing activities that wouldn't be criminalized if if the person was you know, had a, had a home um could be un unconstitutional under the the Eighth Amendment, um, and unfortunately, the city of LA just um, joined, voted to to join that uh, appeal to the Supreme Court to to, to uphold the ban, um, which would allow them. LA, it's kind of complicated. LA basically wasn't super the 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 impacts of of Boise on LA were not necessarily that. Um, immediate because LA was already bound by this earlier settlement to allow, um, which kind of came to the same conclusion that LA's ban on, on tents on the sidewalk was, uh, was illegal because there was, you know, nowhere else for people to go. And so LA now has this, uh, rule that allows camping between 9pm and, and 6am, uh, subject to those restrictions about not being in driveways and things like that. But, um, but you can have tents up overnight. And so basically it's a sort of tenuous agreement um, along the lines of what, what Boise um, settled. And, you know, so there's been this long back and forth where you're trying to kind of fight these 
lawyers in Los Angeles, Los Angeles Legal Aid Foundation, um, uh, various groups in Venice have been working on these kinds of, of, of legal arguments for a long time, arguing that, uh, you know, for the property rights of the homeless, for instance, um, you know, that, that, that the encampment sweeps amount to a legal search and seizure um, for the, yeah, the, the, against the criminalization of sleeping or other activities that are sort of necessary for survival. Um, so there are these, you know, there's this constant back and forth where, um, you know, lawyers and activists are trying to like build these cases to just basically hold space, um, I think for the, for, for homeless people, but they are, you know, it's really tricky because, you know, the city can constantly rewrite its code. There's like, as I said, there's all these different jurisdictions. There are all, there's Los Angeles County, there's Los Angeles city. And I think it's the, you know, that there's a, um, and already you've seen in response to the, to the ninth circuit decision, cities trying to sort of quickly rewrite their ordinances or write these new sorts of ordinances. Um, you had, uh, uh, reportedly Trump, administration justice department officials meeting with Los Angeles to think about workarounds for Mitchell, which is our settlement that, 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 uh, resulted in the tents being allowed, um, under certain, in certain conditions. So, you know, there's this way in which, um, I think cities have continued to see activist campaigns at, in Garcetti, the mayor of LA has said as much as kind of like, um, they will deride activist campaigns that are focused on, on lawsuits and, and like establishing these minimum, uh, thresholds, um, as like a distraction or, you know, they'll even accuse them of like not really caring about the homeless because they're just focused on these, these legal battles, um, instead of providing housing. And that's obviously like very cynical, um, and and bad faith read, reading of these things. I mean, the fact is that you know everyone that's working on those types of you know sort of maintaining the legal um, minimum of rights for for homeless people is also advocating for for as much housing you know the, the solution that builds housing and, and gets people into housing fast. Well, the last question I have I can ask because you're a Harvard woman, so you're probably familiar at least anecdotally with with Dr. Michael Sandel who I think has, has really done an amazing job um, explaining concepts of inequality and fairness and morality to a broader audience. Uh, and in you know, my estimation is one of the most interesting professors teaching in the Ivies along with several others. But when we look at, when we bring up Trump, cruelty is not far behind in terms of the question the interviewer probably wants to ask unfortunately. And when we're looking at things like ICE and immigration prosecutions, which have uh, skyrocketed, though they were high under Obama or increasing under Obama, um, but there does seem to be sort of a cruelty is the point aspect to Trump. Uh, I bring up Sandel to sort of ask this question of what do you make of it theoretically or in your own sort of opinion as to why we see this shrinking in the United States of what it means to be a citizen Whereas we see this sort of huge expansion of what it means to be exiled from citizenship in terms of your right to live, in terms of your right to stay, in terms of your right to sleep. What does it mean, you know, when it's harder and harder to 
say that you actively are part of the body politic in the United States and more and more bodies, be it immigration or homelessness, are increasingly viewed as, as expendable or waste? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I, but I think maybe it might be the opposite that we have always been in this fight to sort of expand the, uh, expand the vision of the body politic, right? Which in the United States actually started out very small. Um, and that, uh, that this, we have steps forward and backward, but that this is, um, that so much of our society just privileges property and privileges the, uh, you know, the, so, you know, the, the, yeah, I would say that like privileges property and, um, and those who have it. And, uh, that can be all sort, you know, that can be taken in all kinds of ways. But I think that the, in, in the instance of homelessness, what we're looking at is like a group of people that, you know, that the most Americans would rather sort of didn't just not think about, you know, and I think like urban, um, what's really interesting in, in California is, as you mentioned, like it's, these, these are liberal states, right? These are liberal places and, and like they really expose like the limits of liberalism. But I think the limits of liberalism is sort of where we find the homeless. Your work and Hobbes' work obviously emphasizes the same people who vote for Sanders or Warren when it comes to the issue of homelessness would sound more like a Trump voter. Well, and there's the tremendous power of, of uh, the real estate industry as well in California, right, of, of, of development and, and building and, you know, a certain vision of what a, you know, what a prosperous downtown community looks like, right? And that uh, that is just such a dominant force in California politics in particular, um, even in a, you know, in a liberal state, they're sort of this, maybe they're socially liberal on other things, but the, the, the real estate and sort of property interest is, is an enormously powerful political force here. Well, Cora, before um, you go, was there anything we didn't touch upon or anything that I didn't emphasize that's important for understanding your piece? I think, as I mentioned, along with uh, uh, Mr. Hobbs, your work is, is really interesting in terms of the sad thing is the left loves to talk about Sanders and Warren, but there's people dying in the streets every day who, you know, our help and attention would mean a lot more towards. Is there any uh, organization you'd like to point listeners to or anything you'd like to emphasize that we didn't touch upon before uh, you head off? You know, I think it's um, one of the reasons that it's, it's very unusual right now to have like sort of some national attention on, on homelessness um, and Trump and like Trump sort of wading into it. Uh, in his way has has brought some attention to it in the last like week or two but i think that uh, for the most part it really gets overlooked as a as a national issue um we don't usually see presidential candidates talking about homelessness right it gets it gets um it's an issue that's very hard to address at the you know the national federal level because you know the dynamics are so particular to each each city each each town um but the, the flip side of that is it's is it is you know perhaps the most obvious kind of local issue the most obvious sort of avenue for engagement um, that all of us can have um, as members of our own communities.